This episode of the Reverend Hunter podcast is brought to you by Caldera Lab. Look, we all know that first impressions matter. And if you're not taking care of your skin, that's going to be the first thing someone notices. And they might think that you're older than you are. If you want to look young like me, do what I've done. Start using the Caldera Lab regimen. I've been using it now for a few weeks. I got to say, Courtney is constantly telling me, you got to put lotion on your face. Well, I've been doing it. I've been washing my face. I've been using Clean Slate, which is how you start and end your day with Caldera Lab. You put a base layer of daily moisturizer on, and there's even uh, an eye serum that I put on before I go to bed at night. So you too can try this regimen. You can get 20% off of anything at Caldera Lab for this regimen. The best offer you're ever going to find anywhere if you use the code REVHUNT, R-E-V-H-U-N-T. Just go to calderalab.com slash REVHUNT. You too can make an unforgettable first impression. And people will come up to you and say, you look younger. I'm just going to bet on that. Caldera Lab dot com slash rev hunt also the link is in the show notes hello and welcome to the reverend hunter podcast this is tony jones i'm the reverend hunter joined as always by the piglet to my winnie the pooh Brandon. <laughs> it's better than your Eeyore. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're you're a bit of an Eeyore. You have a some, somewhat of an Eeyore vibe at times. That's very true. I am kind Not, of an Eeyore. I don't say Eeyore. that in a negative way. I think there should be more Eeyores in the world. We'd be a lot more peaceful. <laughs> well, I like the way you put that. How you doing, Tony? Good, Brandon. I think starting August 1st, there's going to be more people like Eeyore in the state of Minnesota. And why is that? THC becomes legal. <laughs> I, I can't believe I didn't put two and two together, but you know, part of that might be the the ER problem in itself. <laughs> I'm at, I'm at the cabin, and uh, my mom likes to watch the nightly news, uh, the evening news. So I pulled it up on her last night for her on the Roku, and on the local evening news, they had a clock countdown timer to when weed becomes legal in Minnesota. <laughs> that's that's hilarious. <laughs> first. They're really, oh, it's a big deal. It's a it's, big deal. It's going to be kind of confusing because it's legal, but you can't really buy it anywhere. So I'm not sure yeah. how exactly that works for the next year. I'm guessing they won't do much uh, enforcement. Um, that's, that's the case. Well, you got to, you did a little camping. How'd that go? It went all right. It went all right. We uh, had to cut it a little short. We went up to the UP, um, Porcupine Mountain State Park, which was mm. it's absolutely beautiful up there. It's It really is beautiful up there. But I wasn't feeling so well. My uh, girlfriend, she wasn't feeling so well. And we're just, mm. we just didn't want to have to camp when we weren't feeling so well. So we, we instead uh, chose not to feel well on the six-hour car ride home. Oh, <laughs> dang, dude. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah but how was your great. weekend? Uh, good, really good. I'm at the cabin right now. Um, I was practicing fly fishing last night. I caught a couple sunnies. Uh, my, my casting technique is not the best, 
not ideal, but I'm working on it. Uh, my buddy John from across the street, whom you've met and hunted with, is up here, as is my son Aiden. It's his last visit to the cabin before uh, I take him to college in a couple weeks. So that's, you know, kind of a bittersweet deal, but uh, we're trying to make the most of it. The weather, dude, the weather is just unbelievable. I oh, mean, it's, yeah, it's perfect, especially up north. Oh, yeah. It's just like 80 and low humidity. So we're going to fish today. We're going to shoot some clay targets, uh, run the dogs a bit, and yeah, try to enjoy the the last days of uh, at the cabin with Aiden before he heads off to college. You know, big, big change coming up, becoming an empty nester. So, yeah. Well, bittersweet, but like you said, at least you're you're making the most out of it. Yeah. Yep. And the, and the, you know, I I've said this before listeners will know, uh, that, um, I I've committed myself to fly fishing. Once I became an empty nester, I was putting it off and now this is, it's right around the corner. So, uh, my buddy, John has loaned me a fly rod and I've been practicing on the dock and I was practicing on the boat last night. And like I said, caught a couple sunnies and this is just an ideal way to introduce this episode with my friend David McIlvaney. Um, he is a guy I met last year in Wyoming at the Outdoor Writers Association of America conference in Casper, Wyoming. We hit it off immediately and we've kept in touch. He is a hell of a fly fisherman and a hell of a writer. And you can find one of his essays uh, linked in the show notes. And then if you follow him, like on Instagram, look at his bio, you're going to find uh, other stuff. You know, he always links to the stuff he writes, but what a great guy. We had a fantastic conversation. He's, he's a very thoughtful, uh, wonderful, humble human being who um, took up fly fishing at age 50, grabbed his first fly rod, and it's become a passion of his so uh, I, I love talking to him. He's already texted me and said there's other stuff he's been thinking about that he wants to talk about. So we're going to have to have him back on for uh, part two. But this will be a good part one. Rivers wash away your sins, he told me. So make sure you listen for that and some of the more spiritual aspects of fly fishing that we talk about. Here is my conversation with fly fishermen and essayist david McIlvaney. thanks for listening to the reverend hunter podcast as always be sure to rate review subscribe and share this podcast with other people who might like it thanks for listening well thanks for coming on uh the reverend hunter podcast i know you you're a kind enough person to listen to some of the episodes and i appreciate the support um you know, I think it's funny, uh, you and I met at a conference, and I've attended lots of conferences in my life, usually, not usually sitting, listening to other people talk. I, I tend to only go to conferences where I'm the one up in front with a microphone, which is just my own, I don't know, narcissism probably, but uh, you and I hit it off right away, man. And it's always Ooh. fun going to an event like that and, and making a connection with another person. You think, oh, this is, you know, this must be the, the universe's reason of why I came to this place. Every once in a while, the universe does click. 
You know, it's like tumblers and a lock, right? Yeah. And, and a door opens, essentially. Uh, first of all, uh, Tony, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for asking me. I am a huge fan of your podcast. Um, I believe at this point, after we met, I've now listened to every episode. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. That's rarefied yeah. air, David. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's me, your mother. Better, it, no, you know, not, yeah, my mother go, not my mother, not my spouse. Mother. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, it was funny because uh, I still remember where we did uh, where we did meet with Mark as well up in that uh, up in that little suite having a yeah. few beers and uh, yeah. and yeah, it was, it was, we just immediately connected and I think you were very forthright with who you were, what your background was, et cetera, et cetera. We immediately started talking about religion. I immediately told you that I was an atheist, raised an atheist. Yeah, and yeah, I think you described me as a nun. N-O-N-E. Yeah, N-O-N-E-S, yeah. A nun. Yeah, N-O-N-E-S, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I'm absolutely thrilled that we've kept up that acquaintance and friendship. Yeah, and I think I also said, or maybe it was in a more recent conversation, that you maybe are creeping closer to some sort of theism, skeptical theism, while I might be... Maybe I'm not, cre- I don't know, creeping away from it. I'm just less, cool. I'm less certain of it or less confident in it. So you, you and I are going to meet somewhere on these, uh, <laughs> on the spiritual transcendent wavelength. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, I will. Yes, you're absolutely right. I am going through something for the past, you know, I guess maybe a year now where I'm, really considering spirituality, my spirituality, my relationship with the woods where I tend to find my spirituality. And I may be using that word incorrectly, but you know, forgive my, uh, my ignorance with uh, theological terms. Um, and, and I'll be honest with you, Tony, part of that were a couple of very brief conversations that you and I had back mm-hmm. in May. Hmm. And you just got me considering things in a slightly different way. Or, or opened a door ever so slightly for me that I was then able to push open a little more. So mm. I'm definitely not there. I don't know what that end goal is. Um, but I'm on a journey where I'm reassessing my relationship with, uh, with the world at large, but more specifically my relationship with the woods, with the outdoors, mm. with fishing, with hunting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a fantastic tease. And now we can spend some time walking the path of how you got there and listeners will know to stay tuned because we'll circle back to that. Um, first of all, situate yourself for us geographically right now. I see uh, listeners can't see it, but you've got uh, uh, looks like a wooden cabin behind you with uh, maybe a saw, a hand saw on the wall. Uh, yeah, I love it. We yeah. have. I'm going to flip uh, my little computer here. And- uh huh. Oh, beautiful. You'll be, yeah. So I'm sitting on the back deck of my Catskills cabin or Catskills camp. I have uh, 25 acres um, tucked up the side of a mountain, uh, very isolated. I'm at the end end of a mile long dead end road, Uh, dead quiet up here. It's kind of perfect for me. It's a traditional Northeast forest. It's very, very dense as you saw when I spun the camera. Other than what I've cleared in front of me, it's pretty much solid, solid woods. Um, it's a. I grew up in Canada. I'm, I'm 
sure you knew that. Mm -hmm. So this speaks to me a little bit in that, and I understand the environment, I guess. I understand the geography of this. When I get to our cabin on Friday, I'm going to text you a picture of our garage, which is um, covered with old lumberjack tools, you know, 100-year-old lumberjack oh. tools, like that handsaw you've got behind you on the wall there. Uh, we have one very similar. Um, you didn't always live in a remote cabin in the Catskills because when we met, you were no. still, I think, located in New York City and, and just then selling your place. So how did you get to New York City? What were you doing before this big change? I grew up, uh, I grew up in Canada. I grew up in a steel town. Uh, called Hamilton, Ontario, which is at the very western tip of Lake Ontario, kind of halfway between Toronto and Buffalo. Uh, fine place to grow up, but the kind of place that when you were 18, unless you were going to go into the steel factories, you you got the hell out of Dodge, you know. And typically you headed to Toronto or something like that. So I did that. I spent uh, went to school in Toronto, spent a number of years there, ended up in Southeast Asia where I directed TV commercials for about three and a half years throughout the region. And then uh, finally ended up in New York City. Um, uh, met and fell in love with a woman, uh, also Canadian, but she was moving to New York. So I followed her and we spent 25 years in New York City. And I have to say it was fantastic. Hmm. The, the fact that I was a kid from a small town in uh, Canada and I was living in New York City. And at the end of it all, we had a we had a pretty nice apartment, top floor of a building, views of the Empire State Building and Grand Central Park and all that. It was it was kind of cool. We sold that last October. I will admit, I wept hmm. a little. Wow. Um, you know, it was a very emotional experience for me. But uh, we had this cabin, and and really we came up during COVID, sort of full time. It always mm -hmm. was a weekend place. Came up during COVID full time, and then just decided that ah, we could make this work, and it's time for a new change. Yeah. So we sold, moved everything kind of up here, lots of stuff in storage. And then we ended up buying a place in Mexico where I, now the intention is to spend winters. How did you back to Southeast Asia? How that, uh, you, you graduate from college in Canada and you end up directing commercials in Southeast Asia. So that seems a kind of an unusual career path. Yeah, I was, um, I studied. I studied animation initially. Um, uh, I worked as an animator for a bit, then animation director, and then worked my way up to live action director. And at the time, there was an international reel going around a collection of you know the best commercials that were going on in the world. And somebody in Malaysia saw one of my spots, called me up and said, would you consider coming here? And I think I was on a plane within a week. Wow. At that point, I just needed a change. I had never really traveled much in my 20s, and so now I was in, I guess, my early 30s and really wanted that change. So I just hopped on a plane, and that was a huge cultural shock, and Dang. I learned a lot. Um, I learned a lot about myself, um, but I was based in KL, but I lived in India for a while, Jakarta, Singapore, traveled around and kind of in, just sort of enjoyed that life. It was, it was hard to get me to come back, actually. Had I not met yeah. Elizabeth, I, would, I don't think I would have. I spent uh, some time in Kuala Lumpur on a, you know, some church and seminary over there, flew me over there, and I maybe was over there for 10 days. And I have such fond memories of that city, had such a great time there. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was it was a very cool city. I just I loved everything about the culture. The fact that it was multicultural. Yeah. Essentially Chinese, Malay, and Indian. I thought was interesting. And that really, really came out in the food. Mm -hmm. The food of KL and, yes. and Singapore to some extent is just world class. I agree. So, you know, yeah. I, I put I put on weight and you know <laughs> enjoyed my time. Now you said you've already revealed that you grew up as an atheist. Would you say that in your house were your parents like staunch atheists or were they kind of just uh not that interested in in religion um i was my parents certainly were around my f without getting too far into it my father was a failed man mm. uh so it was sort of in and out of our lives i was raised by my grandfather my okay. ukrainian grandfather um he he was put into uh, the first conscripted for the First World War when he was in Ukraine as a as a teenager. Essentially, I'm a little older than you, so mm -hmm. so he's he's uh, he was around at that time, and um, he was put in by the priest, and he really grew to resent the Orthodox oh, Church. Interesting. Um, and the priest that put him in there uh, essentially destroyed his life. He told a story that I think after about a year and a half or two years or so. He was finally near enough to his hometown that he uh, skipped out one night and walked to his town uh, to see his mother, essentially, knocked on the door. And at that point, I guess he had lost so much weight and was so haggard that she didn't recognize him. Wow. And he said, I'm, I'm, your, I'm your son. And she said, no, you're not. And slammed the door. And that was the last he ever saw of his mother. No. Um, so she, he, he, could, he, he had his person, yeah, he had his, oh yeah, yeah, he had his personal reasons for not liking the church. <laughs> for not knocking on religion. the door. But I mean, I would think you'd be a little more yeah. persistent and knock on the door again and say, no, no, really. Well, I guess he just turned around you know, and walked uh, away. Huh? Um, wow. He just turned around and walked away. This was, this was sort of the Ukrainian way at the time, I guess. <laughs> and, uh, Jeez. he eventually made his way to Canada. Um, and then built a life there and, and built mm -hmm. a life for his family. So that was pretty cool. But so being kind of raised by him in a sense that everything I was taught about being a man really kind of came from him, uh, that was part and parcel of it. You know, wow. I mean, I've been to, obviously, obviously I've been to churches, I've been to weddings and churches, things like sure. that. I've never sat for a church. I've never sat for a church service. Mm. Um, though I did have a really interesting night one night in Westminster Abbey where um <laughs> where where my wife and I ended up uh, on a Wednesday I guess in for on a Wednesday night for Evensong I guess yeah yeah and they closed they closed the abbey down and we went to the side door and you know it was in London so I was somewhat dressed up and had a hat and a you know proper coat on and we were ushered inside us and about 30 other people and the person who brought us in said have you ever been to Westminster Abbey by chance? I have, yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, cool. Yeah. So you know, it's just it's an incredibly important oh, yeah. place, and you're walking yeah. along, and you're and you're walking over, you know, plaques that say Sir Isaac Newton, whatever, who <laughs> right. I assume is interned, you know, at your feet, things like that. So we got up to where the choir was going to perform, and he asked me, "Are you friends of the choir?" And I said, "Sure, of course." <laughs> so he said, "Okay." So, so then, so instead of the directing us to the folded up chairs, we were brought to these tall, for lack of a better word, throne-like chairs behind the choir 
where we sat for this entire performance. Mm. That was kind of cool. That was, that was my most uh, churchy experience. And I have to say, as, as they go, that was a pretty good one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's downhill from there, brother. I'm telling you, if you just, <laughs> if you drive down your mountainside and walk into your uh, local Methodist church next Sunday, you'll be, you'll be sorely disappointed um, compared to that. <laughs> Oh, oh, that's amazing. Funny. And yeah. I, I'll tell you, it says something about the difference in personalities between you and me, because I, if, if somebody would have said, are you friends of the choir? I would have said, oh, no, no, no. Sorry, no, I, I'll go sit in the folding chairs. So I love that. Right. And I, I need to be a little more, you know, why not? What the hell you got to lose, you know? Well, th- th- this might have been at one of those periods in life where you, you decide to say yes to everything. Yeah, yeah. I love it. Yeah. Um, did you, did that grandpa take you out fishing and hunting? Was that part of your upbringing? Absolutely not. Hmm. Um, we, so growing up in a steel town, growing up lower working class, um, we, we would go coarse fishing, I guess. We'd fish for carp and suckers. Uh, certainly the Eastern Europeans love those. Sure. So, you know, you come to your friend's house with a, with a bunch of carp and, you know, there's a feast. Um, we grew up, uh, we grew up very close, just slightly in the suburbs of Hamilton, very close to a forest that was known as the King's Forest. And that was a time when I'm sure you, you can relate to this. You know, you're eight years old. Your mother kicks you out of the house at 7 a.m. on a Saturday and says, come home when it's dark. Don't kill yourself. Yes, so, yes. so what, you know, my, my time and, and my buddy's time was spent exploring this forest. And, you know, if we fished, we fish with shitty little rods and, you know, in little ponds trying to catch carp and suckers and things like this. We explored the forest. We built forts. We poked dead shit with a stick. And, <laughs> and there was a lot to learn with poking dead things yes, with a stick. Yes, um, You know, and, you know, then, then you become 13 and somebody steals a playboy from their father and you know that that's that's amusement for a good six months or so you know <laughs> um <laughs> but anyway um i think i think where where you're going with this is um was i fly fishing back then because that's primarily what i do now and the answer was no uh fly fishing was something from my perspective that was done by rich old white guys in yeah. some far away land called connecticut <laughs> and it just it just was right. not in my world. I didn't know a soul who fly fished. Uh. Um, I did not pick up a fly rod f- until I was 50. Wow. And that was because of a trip I took to Ireland. Okay. Tell um, me about that and trip. What yeah. We we were we were traveling across across Ireland. We ended up in Connemara, the area to the west. And um, we, we were looking for a room for the night and there was this big lodge and they had space for us. So sure, so we took it. What I didn't realize at the time was this was a very, very famous salmon fishing lodge that guys had f- flown in from all over the world to fish here for the week. So, you know, we're, I'm sort of enjoying the experience. We're hiking around, whatever. And that evening, all the anglers come in and there's a big communal table and everybody's drinking and eating and telling stories. And I'm, and I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, you know, I, I, this sounds very intriguing. I, I, I might be able to do this now. I have the means, I have the, the wherewithal. Um, 
maybe I'll take up fly fishing. The next morning as we were leaving, I saw one of the ghillies preparing the rods and waders for the day. Gilly is a, a guide in, in the UK. And I went up to him and I said, you know, if you, if you don't mind me asking, why do you fly fish? Now he's, he's an old Irish guy, so he's going to give me a very old Irish answer. Um, and he thought for a moment and he said, well, there are two things in life that I know are coming, but I don't know when. And the first is a strike of a salmon and the second is death. Hmm. And to tell you the truth, lad, I really like the anticipation of both those things. Oh my gosh. And I just thought, I just thought, damn, I, I, I have to fly fish. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if he tells everybody the story and then sells them a rod Who and they give shot or That's whatever. That's brilliant, but, man. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah wasn't it? Wasn't that good? Yeah, oh I, bought, I bought a fly gosh. rod th three days later and never looked back. <laughs> That's incredible. That guy's like, he probably, yeah. he's like some kind of a guru or oracle or something. I mean, that's like, I mean, it seems to me like your your life in some ways turned on a pivot when he says this because at age, there's not a lot of people who take up a brand new hobby or avocation at age 50 that becomes some, something of an obsession. And you've, in a lot of ways, you, you know, you... You structure your life around your love for fly fishing now. It's a big part of what you do every year, right? How many how many days a year do you fly fish? And how, how many trips do you take to fly fish? And how many of your friends are fly fishermen, you know? Right. Um, I, I fish less than, than I should, or, or I think I should. Um, my, my cabin is, is about 45 minutes from the birthplace of dry fly fishing in North America, which wow. essentially is Roscoe, New York in that area. Um, I'm, I'm 10 minutes away from a world-class tail river, that, uh, tailwater rather, that is part of the New York City uh, watershed. So I have all this ample opportunity to fish around me. I rarely fish here hmm. because I have a cabin in the woods and I have six buildings and I have woods and there's so much work to do at this cabin. Yeah. That's the great, that's the great lie they tell you, right? It's it, that's not in a brochure. Yeah. You buy the place and you think you're going to sip, you're going to sip cocktails on the back porch every day. It's like, no, I'm chopping down trees, I'm hauling shit, I'm fixing broken stuff. That's just anyway. Yes. I I travel to fish for the most part, and and I guess as you know, my new profession is writing about, essentially about fishing. Yeah more about my relationship with the outdoors, my relationship with fishing, my relationship with the woods, my relationship with hunting a little bit. So uh, yeah, so in, that's, in that sense, I'm quite fortunate that I was able to really shift my way very fast and, and very recently. It was only out of the beginning of COVID that I started writing uh, this type of work. And I got lucky that I, you know, I sold everything I wrote and continued to do so. Mm. Yeah. Um, did you, what did you do when you got back from that Ireland trip? You had a rod. Did you start, did you take mm -hmm. lessons? Did you go to Central Park and practice your, your casting? Uh, what was the next step no, for you? Um, well, the next step was we, we got back from that trip and that was the last trip before we were going to leave New York and move to San Francisco for a short period of time because my wife had an opportunity there. So, you know, 
got to San Francisco and looked around and looked up fly fishing and found something called the Golden Gate Angling and Casting Club in Golden Gate Park. I don't know if you know it, but this is probably one of the most prestigious uh, fly casting clubs in the country. Uh, World-class anglers and casters have come out of this club. And they had, you know, they had free lessons every second Saturday or something like that. So I went down there and, you know, would practice with my, with my rod and pick up some tips here and there. And then they organized a trip um, up to the Sierra uh, okay. to go fishing for the weekend. And I have to say, we, it was stunning. We mm. fished a little creek called the North Fork of the Yuba River, chock full of feisty little rainbows. Like it, it, was, it was impossible not to catch a fish. Uh, but it's beautiful. You know, the Sierra are beautiful. This particular mountain was lovely. The stream was gorgeous. I got back from that weekend and told my wife that we were going to go back the next weekend. Uh, I found a guide and we went up there and we fished another river. And, you know, I gave her the guide so they could go and fish. And about an hour into that, she turned to me and she said, I get it. And since then, She's never given me a hard time if I ever want to go fishing or wherever I want to do, you know, because she got that. And there are a lot of other things I could be doing with my time and money, et cetera, et cetera. But this one fully uh, spouse approved, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I have the same experience with Courtney about really about anything, but particularly about hunting. But she does often say to me things like, I'm so glad you're not a golfer. You know, I'd much rather have you spend your time, go pheasant hunt and come home with meat and take our dog and work the dog, you know, and or go to the boundary waters and paddle for a week. But I'm just glad you're not golfing every, you know, Saturday, 36 holes or something. And I don't know, it's a value judgment on her part, I guess, but I'm, I'm down with it. It's a value judgment on my part, too. I have no desire to do to golf, I guess, or any of yeah, that stuff. Yeah. yeah, I'm pretty happy. I, I, I'm pretty happy standing in the woods yeah. or standing in a river. This has become redemptive for me. Um, I'll go, if we can get back slightly into the spirituality, rivers wash away your sins. Hmm. Um, they can scour you at times and, and take you down to the bone or take you down to the essence. And this is what I... I truly, truly like about it that and the fact that every river to me represents hope. Uh, and essentially, it's that hope of what's around that next bend, you know, that I put a lot of stock into. That's beautiful. Are you, when you think this, when you imagine yourself on the perfect river and that river washing away your sins and redeeming you, are you... Are you in waders? Are you knee deep in water? Are you in a drift boat? Um, what what's mm. the what's the perfect scenario for you of fly fishing? A uh, perfect scenario would be following a very small thin blue line up to up to the headwaters up to up to a mountain. I um, I don't care so much about catching fish. I've caught a lot of fish. I've caught a lot of big fish. I've sort of gotten that out of my system. I don't take pictures of fish. Um, I just want to go fishing. 
and I want to go fishing in the most pristine environment I could possibly find. And typically that's going to be high up in a mountain, mm. you know, where I'm, I'm basically scrambling over rocks and through water from little pool to little pool to little pool where I know I come across it and I'm going to get three casts into this little pool because these little, where I am here, these little brook trout are going to be so fast. They're just going to dart up and dart down, you know, and I'm only going to get a, a shot or two at them. And then I just move on to the next pool because it's, it keeps going, keeps going, keeps going. That's, that's ideal for me. That said, um, I recently published an essay, which I think you may have read about a trip I took to Connecticut uh, to go fishing with a friend. And that ended up at uh, midnight, he and I in the black throwing mouse patterns at brown trout. And I caught the biggest brown trout I've ever caught in, in North America. I caught, caught larger in South America. And that was pretty damn exciting. I'm going to say <laughs> it's like you can't see anything. Your uh, rod is bent over. There's this whale at the end of it. You don't know what you're doing. You're calling your friends. You're trying to get this thing in the net. That was, that was kind of cool. And if you haven't seen that little clip, I'll send it to you. Yeah, send me the clip. And I have read that article, that essay, which is beautiful. And I'll link to it in the show notes because everybody should read it. Uh, and you quote a philosopher on there who's been on the podcast, Aaron Simmons. And uh, it'll be a, a joy. It'll be a little serendipitous joy in my life if the two of you get to fly fish together at some point. Because I think that's that would meant to be. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that would be wonderful. Uh, Aaron reached out to me after uh, I guess uh, you you sent it to him, and and then you hooked us up. Uh, we had a really nice conversation. He actually, um, sorry, he quote, actually found David. He found that on his own. I didn't send it to oh. him. He found it on his own oh. and posted about it on Facebook and said, "I just got quoted in this oh. article." And I'm like, oh, I know the guy who wrote that article. I'm guessing I can, I guess, and I know how he heard about you. So, wow. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't realize that. Um, he just ran oh, across even, it, or maybe cooler. he reads that, you know, regularly, uh, regularly reads that or whatever. So, yeah. it was a nice surprise oh. for him. Yeah. Out of the blue. It was a, it was a, it was a wonderful surprise for me. Um, and that quote of his, I have, and I've actually listened to that. Um, um, episode of your podcast probably a dozen times. Uh, and that quote has really come to mean a tremendous amount to me. And I think, cause I think he summed up so beautifully. Once I, once I looked up eschatological and <laughs> worked, my, worked my way through that. Right, right. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It really, it, I think he summed up beautifully why I fly fish in a way that I, yeah, I could never, I really, really appreciate that. Yeah, he uh, here's the quote, so listeners can hear. But you should definitely look up this this um, essay in hatchmag at hatchmag.com, which I said I'll link. Um, when I go fishing, it's not that I hope to catch fish; it's that I hope to become the sort of person who continues to fish. So while I'm fishing, I am the very thing I hope to be, and in that sense, I am already and not yet. And David, this idea, this phrase, this phrase already, but not yet, this is a very famous phrase from 19th and 20th century 
German theology in which, um, you know, the, with the with the scientific revolution following the Enlightenment, um, theology was dethroned. Back in the days of Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, uh, theology was called the queen of the sciences. You know, it was the it was along with philosophy. You know, it was considered the highest form of of investigation into the human experience. But theology was dethroned, of course, with the advent of science and um, and and historical methods of studying scripture. You know, starting to chip away at the certainty that people had in these old texts and in the in the dogma that had grown up around these old texts. And um, w- one of the more kind of what you might call a theopoetic phrase is this idea of the already but not yet when people in that era were trying to grapple with how is it that you as a church proclaim that the death of Jesus is redemptive and salvific, and yet you look around and the world is just as rife with sin and violence as ever. And the answer becomes, well, Jesus was the already but not yet. In some, in, He fulfilled God's promise to redeem the world, and yet... It's that that is still coming. That the at the full advent of that, and this is the this is this term eschatology that you've that you've learned. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, he's turned. It's it's such a beautiful way that he turns that phrase that's kind of inside baseball for theology, but then uses it in this uh, context of fly fishing of of. He want he's being the person he wants to be when he's fishing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I missed every theological <laughs> reference there, so, so, and I'm now going to have to look up Salvaic, but I, I could probably figure that one out. Yeah, uh, um, yeah, I. So I really didn't pick up on any of that. You know, I looked at it more in a, in its base level, I guess. Um, this idea, and I think what a, I quote that within the context of this section of this essay, which was a little odd, which, which is why I fly fish, you know, and it is to come up with a different type of conversation with nature. Mm. I want an equal conversation with nature. I want a, a, a conversation between peers and I'm willing to, or I find myself becoming uh, an archetype in the sense, uh, in the sense of nature as an archetype. In other words, if it's capital Ed nature, then I will become capital A angler. And when I step into the river, we're now having this equal conversation in a way that I was never able to have as a passive observer of nature. Hmm. I've hiked plenty of times in my life. I've backpacked. I've done all these things. I know I can go out for a hike right now in some woods and there will be deer and they'll be scampering away from me and there'll be a squirrel up in a tree chattering away and chipmunks and a grouse will, will bust out and all these things. And like, isn't this amazing? Yes, it is amazing, but it's basically nature saying, you don't belong here. We're a little concerned about you. We're going to have every animal around you tell every animal around them, 
to get the hell out of here. Mm. Um, you know, which is, it's fine. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a, a great relationship. If you get out and you hike, you know, good for you. What angling does, and probably more so, Tony, what hunting does is, is allow me to be more of an equal participatory, uh, have, a, have a participatory relationship with nature that's very, very different. My goal now, if I hunt, if I'm, I'm less grouse hunting, but deer hunting, for example, I need, I need nature to accept me. I need to walk in where I'm not scattering all those animals. And whether I'm walking in slowly or whether I'm walking in at four in the morning to get to a deer stand and just sit there. And some of my most fascinating experiences have been sitting in a deer stand, watching the forest come to life. Hmm. And it's, I'm, I'm dead quiet and it's accepted me as you know part of the landscape. Um, and I just, I just absolutely love that. And in the same way that I love when the forest goes to sleep at night, you know, I'm trying to suck out that last half hour of light as I'm in that deer stand. Yeah. These are the things that I'm more interested in it these days than just, you know, seeing a pretty waterfall or, or yeah. whatever it is. Do you think you can articulate what it is about fly fishing that seems uniquely spiritual in the sporting life because i've read a lot i i have not really taken up fly fishing i've told you this before i've told i've said it on the podcast that i'm now just two and a half weeks away from dropping my youngest off at college and bow hunting and fly fishing are the two outdoors endeavors that i have put off because of the expense and the time commitment until I had some more freedom by not having kids at home. So it's around the corner. Um, but I've read a lot about fly fishing. And, uh, you know, I've read A River Runs Through It five times and um, watched the film twice that many. And um, the Brothers K and the River Y. And the, there's just so many. It seems to elicit something that other outdoors pursuits don't. It's philosophical or theological or spiritual. Um, what do you think it is about fly fishing that, that does that? <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I don't know if you've heard me a little, a little moan there. Yeah, um, it, that may be beyond my ken, to be honest. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I, it, is, it is arguably the first form of fishing that that we've had fly fishing is the most written about sport in the history of in the history of sports no kidding um huh. yeah i i believe that well because i mean it's been going on for how long right so i believe that these early guys were you know whittling twigs and throwing a little feather on it whether that was you know um american natives or whether that was some dude in scotland or or wherever um i think they were doing that far before they were throwing out streamers or, or, you know, minnow imitations or things like that, you know? Um, so I like that. Uh, I also think, look, I mean, I talk about that in that essay as well. Some people call it an art. I don't, that's, that's a stretch. I think it can be very artful. There's no way around it. A beautiful fly cast is truly uh, a thing of wonder in a way that, uh, you know, 
throwing out a, a spinning rod just it just isn't it just isn't i mean i think that you could even if you look closely enough on a really really good loop you know a fly loop on a line going out there's maybe a little fibonacci thing going on there as well you know i mean it just seems to resonate with everybody i don't know anyone who's never watched that and said wow that's that's really kind of cool you know past that i mean obviously it has its challenges mm -hmm. um i think what i what i like about it and i may have gone off tangent here and i apologize no, no. it's good i think i think what i like about it most and this i'm not the first one to observe this um if I go uh, bait casting, spin fishing, whatever that is, I'm 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 th I'm in the boat and I'm thinking I'm thinking boat. I'm randomly casting out and hoping that something gets my 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 spoon, you know, whatever that is. I may have a general sense of some structure and I think well there could be bass by that down tree over there, but for the most part, I'm just casting out randomly. Um, fly good fly fishing demands that I focus on the river. Hmm. It demands that I put everything else aside and I have to focus on what is that, that fish that's you know 40 feet away with a brain the size of a pea. Uh, <laughs> what is it eating? What is it eating? Where is it eating it? What stage of the insect life is it eating? How do I now solve the problem of this river? Because between myself and that fish in 30 feet, are probably six different currents that I now have to navigate with my fly line. What do I have in my what do I have in my fly box that's going to imitate? How do I get to it? It is one of the few things for me, and, and people have other things, that allows me to just focus hmm. and let everything else drop away yeah. as as much as possible. And I think that's probably why I do it. I I like the idea of solving, uh, of solving the problem. I'm very, I, I, I'm a terrible caster, and I'm a, I think I'm a bit of a lazy angler and things like this. What I'm very, very good at is determining where fish are, and how to get to them. Hmm. So I spend a lot, okay. of, I spend a lot of time doing that, and that's kind of cool. I was down in Northern California fishing the Pitt River, uh, and I wrote about this almost almost dying on the Pitt River because it is it is the world's toughest river to wade. It's just it's a wow. it's a death trap. And stupidly, I was out there by myself, and nobody knew I was there, and and I almost drowned. But but that's <laughs> put that aside for a second. Um, the Pitt River was a I had gone to fish another river, which was a dry fly river. The Pitt River is solely a nymphing river, and I had no nymphs, and I'm in the middle of nothing, and there's a fly shop 50 miles away, but I'm not driving to it. So I proceeded to take clippers and cl denude clip um, all my dry flies down to, you know, reasonably good imitations of nymphs. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a little sad because some of them were really beautiful dry flies. But then, uh, but then I had a box of nymphs and was able to, uh, to catch fish. I loved solving that mm. problem. Mm. You know, um it's interesting you say that because I've and in in my in my forthcoming book it's it's a part of it too this thing of why I became so obsessed with hunting in my 40s as I was going through a very difficult time in life and um, one of the things 
for sure one of the reasons is because it demands my total attention it, in a way that very few things do in this in the way we live our lives where we're you know hate the phrase multitasking all the time but it's true i mean we just we're kind of half invested half paying attention to the most of the stuff we do because we can half ass a lot of stuff and be fine you know you can go to the grocery store and also be checking twitter you know while you're pushing your cart down the aisle and um but walking through a field with a bunch of dogs and a bunch of guys with firearms and birds jumping up in, in front of you and you know a lot of places to step in gopher holes and break your ankle and everything else it just does it de- it demands total focus and concentration which frankly spin casting doesn't i mean i the reason i don't fish that much when people ask me is I'm like, well, I used to fish and then I started hunting and hunting so much more exciting than fishing. I just find I do fish and my son is crazy about largemouth bass fishing and I'm going to go fish a river with him for smallmouth bass in a drift boat this coming week um, before he leaves for college and I know we'll have a great time. But for the most part, I find... Uh, spin casting pretty boring compared to hunting and now maybe i mean people have said to me well fly fishing is like hunting for fish it's more like hunting than it is like just working a weed line and throwing a popper you know and hoping a bass a hundred a hundred percent yeah 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 Uh, no a hundred percent um though i will say um i wrote i wrote something a little while ago um about my experiences in a little small lake in uh, northern Ontario, on a dock, just just fishing for panfish, fly fishing for panfish on oh, this dock. Yeah, and I have to say, it's like you know, yeah, I've been to Iceland, I've been to Patagonia, I've been you know, all over. This is probably one of my best days of fishing. No Just kidding. sitting on this little dock, pulling in little panfish. And what and were maybe you throwing once to them? While. Whatever uh, I was, I was using a very small rod. I was using a little two weight, and whatever I would bring, one or two flies, nothing particularly interesting. Maybe an Adams, which doesn't really look like any kind of bug. Just something big and buggy. I mean, honestly, I would probably bring a chubby Chernobyl, uh, which is a big foamy kind of thing, which is very popular out west, just because it, it's guaranteed to float. I don't okay. have to keep adding floating to it. It was, it was. It's like an Andy Griffith kind of thing, you know? You're stripped down, it's just you and a pole. And you're just fishing, yeah. and you're catching fish nonstop as the sun goes down and this lake turns golden. And, you know, uh, the, I mean, there's the Thoreau quote, which I won't bore everybody with, but, but yeah, that's, it was very true in that situation. I wasn't there to catch fish. I'm rarely there to catch fish. Um, go back to go back to hunting for a second. So when you decided, you said you were going through some some issues, and when you decided to start hunting, you decided to start bird hunting, pheasant hunting. That was your first thing because I know that's your primary interest, right? It is now. Uh, the first hunting experience I had, and this is the 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 episode that kind of anchors the beginning of the book, is a duck hunting trip into Ontario. Mm. Um, in Lake of the Woods, 
with a guy who was this oh, nice. kind of larger than life figure, a parishioner in my church, who took me kind of took me under his wing and could see that I had some issues with anger, which I really did in around age 30. And it was me struggling with a very difficult marriage and not knowing how to process that. And so it coming out sideways and of course all my own anxieties and lack of self-worth and things like this. And he took me, it, it was, it would, I don't know what the fly fishing equivalent would be. Maybe that river in Northern California, it was like um, being thrown into the deep end of the pool. You know, it was not like, Hey, let's, let's go to a game farm. We'll put out some uh, pen raised pheasants and we'll shoot them. And then we'll go into the bar and have a beer. And Hey, if you like it, um, we can try it again and maybe I'll take you out and we'll hunt some public land or whatever. This was sure. like, um, you're going to shoot your first duck and you're going to do it in a place where no one, you know, this is shoot. This is 99 probably. I think it was probably 98 or 99. There's no cell phones. We didn't have a garment in reach. We were off the grid, man. And we had some, we had one very harrowing, experience um at night on our way back um it was everything it was just everything it was a completely immersive experience and i was i felt no sense of control i was 100 percent in the hands of doug um i could not have done what we were doing uh, i had he was a, he was an expert in it, and even if he wasn't, I had really no choice but to trust him to get us home at night. Um, so yeah, that was it was duck hunting to begin. It's become mm. pheasant hunting. I think I do still love duck hunting, but what I love about pheasant hunting is you're on the move. I I like that aspect of it. Even when it comes to duck hunting, I prefer to jump jump shoot like to try to sneak up on the edge of a river around a bend and, you know, you stick your head out around and then, oh, there's six wood ducks, get up because they, and then bam, bam, bam. Um, and then you go up river and try to find the next bend in the river and see if maybe there are a few mallards tucked under a tree. That's my favorite kind of duck hunting still. Um, but the pheasant hunting thing, it's on the move. The dog work is amazing. Dog work's amazing in duck hunting too differently. Um, yeah, so yeah, All right. I mean, I, it, it's, it, those are the main aspects, you know, you, you were talking about deer hunting. I deer hunt too, but I deer hunt mainly for meat. Um, and I don't love it. I mean, I, I'll, I don't hate it. I mean, I do it. I enjoy it, but I'd rather be on the move than sitting. Fair enough. I have a lot of I have a lot of trouble sitting in a deer stand. <clears throat> I've been busted more times than not yes. checking my phone sitting in a deer stand. You yeah, know? same. same. Um, or climbing it, down it, because Tony, I see a I see yeah. a deer far yeah. away, so I'm like, oh, look, I'm just going to climb down the stand really stealthy and go sneak <laughs> up on that deer. And you're like three rungs down the ladder, and you hear the deer snort and run away. I'm like, no, I cannot. Yeah. Oh my God. This deer live this deer survives right. in these woods 12 months a year and I show up the first weekend of December yeah. and like I'm going to outsmart this deer. So dumb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
yeah, I, I don't, I don't, uh, um, I do it. I'm not terribly successful at it. I can teach you a thousand ways to not shoot a deer. Um, I don't, I don't really scout. I don't have cameras out, any of that. For me, it's just, it's more of a reason to get out there, um, have a kind of a different kind of experience, I guess. Uh, if, if a deer comes by, I missed two last year, which kind of sort of pissed me off, I guess. And then on the last day I walked out of the back door of my cabin, geared up, gun in hand. And there's a big doe sitting 15 yards away on on the side of the hill beside my door. And I just instinctively raised my gun, centered it. She didn't move. And then I lowered my gun and just said, all right, get out of here. You know, just, it wasn't the experience I was after, I guess, yeah, you know, yeah, right. that same deer, a hundred, a hundred yards in the woods, fair game, but there just, you know, just really wasn't my thing. Yeah. 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 Um, tell yeah, me about I mean, the, for me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Go, go ahead, please. Uh, no, I was just going to say, I'm, just, I'm thinking about experience and I'm thinking about, you know, uh, um, how, you know, I fish and I don't really care so much about catching fish. Um, and I think if you read a little bit of my stuff, you'll see that it's rare. It's rarely about catching fish, but I did a salmon trip a couple of years ago with a friend. Uh, we drove up from New York, went up to Nova Scotia to go fishing for a week. And, um, and all we did was eat, sleep, drink fish. That was it. You know, we were on the river at 6 AM as you are on a salmon river. And we kind of, you know, we kind of fished a sunset every day. Uh, have you, you've gone salmon fish or know a little I bit have not, about it? Or? No, I mean, not okay. much. I don't know much okay. about it and I've not done well, it. Okay. Well, I mean, it's essentially you started ahead of a pool and you're casting, you're casting across and down a little bit and you're letting your, let, you're letting your, uh, uh, salmon fly swing in the water until it's, uh, until it's downstream. And then you take a step down, cast again, you work your way through a pool that way. And you'll have, you know, guys behind you, the guys on the bench lined up behind you and everybody rotates through a pool. You rotate twice. And then, so I, I figured it was about 40 casts per pool a couple of times. And then we move on to the next pool, next pool, et cetera. I calculated that by the uh, end of the week, we cast 6,750 times between oh the two gosh. of us. And for that effort, we caught one salmon missed one strike and caught a six inch brown trout and uh, Holy and that was it and, and and i know and the reason i bring that up is that then we we hopped in the car and we drove back to new york city which was a uh, probably 18 hour drive and all we could talk about on the way home was how amazing that trip was mm. and how we couldn't wait to get back mm. so you know to answer a question, you know, a few minutes ago, that's kind of why I fly fish. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that um, experience. Yeah. Before we go, hunting, what, what type of hunting are you passionate about and, and what drew, what's drawn you to it? Um, I, I, again, the hunting came about, uh, and I have no experience with this at all. You know, growing up in Canada, no hunters around me. We really don't have the same kind of gun culture. It's, it's, we have a gun culture. It's a little different. It, um, it was upland more than anything. And here it was grouse. We don't, we don't have a wild pheasant population here. Uh, so this, you know, I, I will occasionally go out and the, the 
New York state will throw some pheasants out, you know, and I'll go out and work with a friend's dog and we'll go, you know, we'll go basically shoot some dinner. It's like shooting chickens, but you know, whatever it's dinner. The dogs have a good time. Uh, but grouse grouse. I really like, cause I find them really tough. Uh, I've got a fair number on my property and around me. Um, a couple of years ago, but I've got a, a very mature forest in a lot of cases. So a couple of years ago, I decided I was going to knock down a few acres and just kind of create a, uh, a, a younger forest, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm one guy by myself and I have a chainsaw right? and I don't have an ATV and et cetera, et cetera. I spent two and a half weeks knocking down trees and then, you know, limbing them and bucking them a little bit and kind of dragging them off because I, I like a I like a tidy forest. <laughs> and uh, like literally, literally, dude, I almost killed myself doing this, just dragging myself back to my cabin every night. However, come the spring, I'm walking through this area and they're in the crook uh, of a maple tree uh, on the on the on the ground is a clutch of 10 grass eggs. Mm. That was that was incredibly satisfying. Mm-hmm. If I never shoot one of those particular grouse, I'm just really happy that I was able to provide that for them and you know bring them into the area. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think I think grouse right now. Uh, you know, you and I had talked about pheasant in in South Dakota. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to do that because that just seems like an amazing experience. Yeah, but I it's think very I different. Very on- different to grouse hunting. But I had a similar experience a couple of weeks ago up at our place. I was driving around uh our trails on the utv and hit the brakes because there were three little grouse chicks i mean they couldn't have been more than a couple days old running across the trail um so that was a good sign yeah yeah you must you must have a lot of grouse in your woods though no we do yeah we do Do because also um about 12 or 12 to 15 years ago, we logged off about 40 acres of our mm. of, of old aspen that had been, uh, in 1973, a tornado went through our property and knocked down a bunch of old growth white and red pines, which was very depressing. And of course, aspen, the opportunist of boreal forests, grow, grew up in northern forests. Sure. And um, so those are perfect for paper mills in northern Minnesota. We sold about 40 acres of that. And then, you know, the aspen, they just regenerate so quickly. And that's what it's it's just young, you know, that a 10-year-old aspen stand is a bonanza for grouse, turkeys, um, uh, deer. They all exactly. love those aspen shoots, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've knocked down. A t- I mean, I don't have as many maybe as you have, but every time I see a mature aspen in a group of you know three or four, I knock a couple down. Yeah, just to get all those shoots coming up that spring. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, cool. um, let's see. I know you're going to the Outdoor Writers Association of America in Alabama. Mm-hmm. This fall, I'm not, Alabama. but I'll, I'll live vicariously through. <laughs> I'll watch your, I'll watch you on Instagram, so I'll know what I'm missing. All the, oh my god, all the, oh. in info sessions and everything else. But um, yeah, what do you yeah, got yeah. coming up no, this it fall? Be, it for, should be fun. Yeah, what do you got coming up this fall for hunting and fishing? Well, I mean, I, 
I'm going to have to head back down to Mexico probably after that for uh, some business. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'll head, I'll be back here. I'm hoping to get a salmon trip uh, back to Nova Scotia. Uh, I'm hoping to do some more fishing up here. And I'm hoping that, um, you know, I'm going to be able to fill my freezer with a deer from my property this winter before I head back down to Mexico for the winter. Mm-hmm. But while in Mexico, um, I'll be fishing for tarpon, um, baby tarpon, which is not that far away from me. And I've got a very good, I, I wrote an essay last year about a particular guide up, uh, up in the north of Yucatan that nobody had heard of. And he was just this amazing guy. So I fish with him every year. So I go up fish with him. And I also met these, these, these hunters down there who have access to 1,300 hectares in the jungle for oscillated turkey. Oh. And um, and I can't remember the name of the small deer, Bro- not Brock, but something like that. So maybe maybe go check Great. that out. I mean, l- uh, unlike you, up until a year ago, I'm a turkey virgin. So yeah. I would like to. Uh, I was like turkey virgin until a year ago. I mean, I'd hunted them a lot, but I had not consummated the relationship yeah. until until that year. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, but the oscillated turkey looks pretty cool. Oh yeah, my gosh, that would be amazing. That, and do you transport? A, yeah. This is just out of curiosity. Do you transport firearms back and forth? No, no, no. I've never hunted there. I don't. I don't think I would. I think it's just easier in that situation. And I, I tend to use sixteen gauges. Uh-huh. I think I probably need a twelve for that. So yeah. it would just be easier to borrow something or rent gotcha. something or, or yeah. what, whatever that is. Um, we're getting close to wrapping. Yeah, yeah. Kind of. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I'll talk forever, but but there's one story that I thought was kind of interesting when we it came to mind when we talked earlier about you and I meeting and tumblers of the universe clicking. So growing up uh, in Hamilton, my favorite book as a kid was My Side of the Mountain. I, do you know this book? I don't. Oh, Goodness gracious! I, I I know what your Christmas present is going to be this year. <laughs> okay. It it was it was it was written in it published in 1960 by an author named Gene Craighead George, and it concerns a 14 year old boy named Sam Gribley who lives in New York City, and one day he tells his parents that he's going to go to the Catskill Mountains to live off the land. Hmm. Being 1960, his parents wish him well, and you know, he he yeah. he hitchhikes his way. Up to the Catskill Mountains, he has $40, an axe, and a ball of rope, I think, or twine. Um, and he gets somebody to drop him off on the side of the mountain. He goes up, and it's written like a, a, a year-long diary in his life, you know. He finds a sort of semi-hollowed-out big hemlock tree, so he continues to carve it out, and he makes that his home. He captures a baby peregrine falcon. Uh, and he calls Frightful, teaches it to hunt for him. He, uh, he learns how to make, you know, um, uh, acorn, uh, like flower out of acorns and bulrushes, whatever. It is a boy's adventure, okay. 100%. Uh, I, um, I devoured this when I was a kid in my little steel town. I had a notebook. I took notes on how to capture my own falcon and, and this and that. And then, you know. You grow up, life goes on, it takes you various places. Um, I buy this cabin 10 years ago, and I think, oh, you know, I'm gonna pull out, I'm gonna pull out the book, My Side of the Mountain. 
only to and reread it, and only to realize that it's set about six miles down the road from where my Come cabin on. is. Yeah. I, so when he when he would go to the library to research something, it's my local library. Wow. Uh, yeah. It, you know, and I guess that's a way Tony of saying it. Every once in a while, the universe throws you throws you one. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It just says, this is where you're supposed to be, buddy, and, and really happy to have you here. Mm. That's, that's a nice thing. That's what I want more of. Yeah. And that's my little, my little journey. I love it. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks a million Sorry. for coming on. And I know, have you, have you read the book Canoeing with the Cree? No. Okay, well, now I know your Christmas gift. There you go. Now you know my birthday <laughs> present. Okay. All right. Canoeing with the Cree. Canoeing oh, with the Cree. Cool. I'll get that for you and uh, we'll trade books. And yeah, well, thanks well, for coming look, on. I mean, it's it's, so, it's, it, it's yeah. a bucket list item of mine, man, that you and I will get outdoors, not just at a con not sit at a conference table together, but get outdoors together to fish and, and hunt and. And uh, maybe I, I am li I am liking a canoe trip into Boundary Waters. Man. Yeah, this we'll is, do this that. Would, this and would be my thing. We'll go out to um, fly fish on the Deschutes with my brother who lives in Bend, Oregon. Oh, and yeah, I've never done yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, that sounds very cool. So he would he All would right. welcome us out there too. Well, yeah, thanks. Cool. Appreciate it so much. Thank you, Tony. I really, really appreciate that. I'm glad. Um, uh, I'm glad you reached out to me. I appreciate the few conversations we've had over the past year, uh, and I really look forward to uh, shaking your hand again.